But on the way home from the three-star tour, Secretary Rumsfeld asked me to come home through Afghanistan and to take a team over there and assess how their training equipment mission was going. But to do that, I felt that I needed to describe the context up front. And so the very first slide in that particular briefing to him when I got back was titled, Afghanistan Does Not Equal Iraq. And it laid out all the ways in which Afghanistan was much tougher than Iraq. Hello and welcome to the pod. Today I'm joined by General David Petraeus, former commander of US forces in Iraq and Afghanistan and known for his successful surges, and Lord Andrew Roberts, historian and author of Napoleon the Great, Masters and Commanders, and George III. And we're talking post-war conflicts from Korea to Ukraine via Malaya, Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan. And we'll be looking at what the future holds. Together, they've written Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, and so they joined me recently for a chat. General Petraeus went on to become director of the CIA after his military career and served under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. I should mention that we were speaking before the Hamas terrorist attacks of the 7th of October, and so I will be covering the history of Israel and Palestine as a bonus episode next week. Please do rate, review and share as their insights are fascinating and applicable in Ukraine and indeed what's going on in Gaza because Petraeus is a master of counterinsurgency. Until then, I'll hand you over to me talking with the General and Andrew Roberts. General Petraeus, Lord Roberts, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome. I wanted to start by asking, I watched a very interesting interview with the two of you at the Cliveden Literary Festival in 2021. So that was within a few weeks, I think, of the withdrawal, the coalition withdrawal from Afghanistan and a few months before Putin's invasion of of Ukraine. And I wondered whether the book, and we're here to talk about conflict, the book Conflict, I wondered whether that was where the idea was conceived Lord Roberts, go for it. Uh, no, the idea was conceived uh, soon after the invasion of um, of Ukraine. And it, the idea really was to try to put the Ukraine war in its historical context um, as it's as a military operation. It wasn't a, it's not a political book. It's very much a military book to look at how the Ukraine war was being fought with regard to earlier conflicts. And so how military history really has uh, um, has affected the conflict. So what we were trying to do was to do that. And at the same time, we wanted to look forward. This isn't just a history book. This is also um, makes makes prognostications about future war and all the various uh, aspects of future war that we write about, including space and cyber and sensors and AI, robotics, drones and so on. Well, that was the section I found most sobering, actually, particularly, I think there's a small section in that concluding chapter around potential for nuclear conflict. And that's interesting, particularly given the first chapter where you have General MacArthur in Korea requesting the use of tactical nuclear weapons. So I wondered, actually, this is as good a time as, as any to, to ask if if a tactical nuclear weapon is the most likely weapon to be used. And I guess it depends on the, on the, um, the theatre, I suppose. But general, yes. 
Well, I don't think it's the most likely weapon to be used. I think there are many, many other weapons that would be used short of nuclear weapons. Is it the most likely nuclear device to be used? Well, I guess. I don't even think that is likely, though. And I think we're seeing that play out, frankly, uh, in the decision-making in Moscow on Ukraine. What we've seen is Putin and his various ministers have used the threat of nuclear weapons. Uh, they've sa done a bit of saber rattling about that. They've really tried everything they could do to intimidate the West, to dissuade the West from supporting Ukraine in the way that we actually have uh, to prevent each of these incremental decisions that have increased the capabilities that the US and the West have provided to Ukraine, um, all obviously unsuccessfully, because I think there's been sufficient dissuasion of Moscow uh, from actually contemplating using these devices. And in this case, it's been very helpful not just to have unity among, again, U.S. and other NATO leaders on this issue, but to have President Xi of China and Prime Minister Modi of India both publicly uh, warn Putin not to use tactical nuclear weapons. And then I think just the sheer logic of this, uh, that a tactical nuclear weapon has a tactical effect and would not really demonstrably change the battlefield situation. Uh, and if anything, uh, whatever gains Russia might reap from this, noting that the wind tends to blow in their direction, not in Ukraine's direction, uh, but whatever that might, quote, achieve, would very likely be offset in the global response to such crossing of a, of a very significant threshold, where countries that have to, to date either stood on the sideline or uh, only tepidly admonished Russia, uh, in contrast, of course, to the, the Western response, which has been very clear about this brutal and unprovoked invasion. But I think use of, tech, of nuclear weapons of any type, including tactical, uh, would result in enormous approbation of, of, uh, of Russia. And again, all countries, I think, would have to take a stand against that. Uh, and to take actions, punitive actions in various ways, not just what, again, a U.S.-led coalition might actually do uh, in, in Ukraine and on the Black Sea and so forth, uh, but also in terms of financial, economic, personal, and diplomatic sanctions uh, of even greater nature than those that have already been imposed on Russia. I think also, um, you know, it's been established pretty well uh, since the Korean War onwards, that uh, you can have full-scale wars which are fought under the um, auspices, essentially, of mutually assured destruction. I mean, that doesn't count the Chinese Civil War because that was fought before the uh, Russians got the nuclear bomb. But um, many, many wars before. And what hasn't tended to happen is anybody making these kind of blackmail threats that you get from Sergei Lavrov and from Vladimir Putin. They've been regular. They've been obvious. They haven't uh, sort of resorted to euphemism. They've, they've basically tried to uh, paint a situation in which they are forced to use nuclear weapons. And that's a new departure. Just the very saber-rattling uh, language is, uh, is, is something that shows quite how um, vicious the Russians uh, are, even though, as uh, David says, I think it's very unlikely they're actually going to use them. 
even even desperate action, I think, would also be another word to describe yeah. what has led them to carry out this nuclear saber rattling and also the movement of the weapons to Belarus. They intended that to be particularly threatening, but the truth is it doesn't matter where a nuclear weapon comes from. Uh, if it's Russian, again, that literally is immaterial. It, but so far, certainly, uh, while there should be concern about this, and there is concern about it, the actions taken to dissuade Putin uh, clearly have been successful. And and also another point I think is worth making, and we certainly, when David and I visited uh, Kiev a few months ago, we, we heard this, that probably more likely than the use, deliberate use of tactical nuclear weapons would be the explosion of the Japarija nuclear facility there. I mean, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest in Europe. It has been woefully badly treated by the Russians who've shelled it on one occasion, the most you know, irresponsible thing you can think of showing a, a nuclear power plant. And if there was to be a leakage there, I think that you would get a lot of Russian disinformation attempting to blame it on the Ukrainians. And uh, it would be an extremely unpleasant thing for everybody involved, but it would be the Russians' fault ultimately. As would the kind of false flag attack that Ukraine has warned Russia has been planning where you know there would be seemingly some kind of event on Russian soil of a dirty bomb or what have you that would be again attributed to Ukraine and would justify Russia taking some particularly egregious action. Although again, it's hard to imagine how much more egregious they could get given the essentially uh, destruction, the efforts to destroy the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine, not just the military infrastructure. Well, General, we're speaking and actually uh, rather a sort of strange time in the in the Western commitment to Ukraine because Speaker McCarthy has just been overthrown and US aid looks like it's been suspended. We're hoping it's it's only a suspension. And I wondered, did this therefore mean that Ukraine is now the, the Western will that's been so strong up till now? Is it now wavering? Well, again, I think this generates legitimate concerns, but the reality is, as the Department of Defense uh, announced in Washington uh, today, they still have five to six billion dollars of assistance to provide to Ukraine on top of the already 44 billion that has been provided from just the United States alone with uh, European countries providing a similar amount, perhaps even a little bit more in terms of pledges of security assistance. Uh, and then very, very substantial quantities of humanitarian, financial, and economic support as well. And you've, you'll have seen the EU has just called for additional support. Other countries have all done that. President Biden has done so as well. And I think that once this is resolved in the House, and it may take some time to do it, it took a considerable number of votes uh, for Speaker McCarthy finally to, to get elected, and he had to make enormous concessions um, to certain elements of his party, which, of course, ultimately brought about his downfall. But once that is sorted out, there is still very much, very, very strong bipartisan consensus in the Senate for support of Ukraine. Uh, and really in the House as well, there is a bipartisan majority that does support continuing uh, Ukraine assistance. And I suspect that at some point, uh, leaders in Congress will get together of both parties that want to continue the effort 
uh, and put together a package that includes not just Ukrainian uh, assistance, but also uh, funding for border security, additional border security for the U.S. southern border in particular, and then probably appropriations for a variety of different uh, disaster relief measures, uh, given the wildfires and terrible storms and other calamities that we've seen for which there is inadequate funding. We're starting to run out of this funding for the uh, the agency that oversees these uh, emergency management efforts. And again, if you can do that, I think you can cobble together sufficient support uh, in Congress uh, to continue the very, very important component that is the U.S. support to Ukraine. Lord Roberts, I was wondering if you could put the Ukraine conflict in a historical context, because, I mean, I I thought that the moment the invasion took place, it, this was after 9-11 and the financial crash of 2008, the third biggest event to hit, well, certainly the West post uh, the fall of the wall. But I wondered if you could put it in context. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Yes, it's a it's a seminal moment in um, in world history. It's uh, it's um, enormously significant. The idea of a war, a major war breaking out in Europe, is a, a completely shocking thing. Really, the way in which uh, Russia, in a totally unprovoked way, this was this is one of the interesting things about it. You know, Putin had been planning for this. British and American intelligence services quite correctly stated that this was about to happen and were proved right in a great uh, intelligence coup, frankly, for um, for the CIA and uh, MI6. And uh, it was essentially ripping up the post-war settlement. It's a, it was a much bigger thing than other European um, fighting, such as the uh, the Balkans in the 1990s, because it's it's a state crossing the borders of another state in a full-on conflagration, and with large numbers of Russians being killed as well. So uh, yes, I think um, I, I think this is much bigger than the. Uh, um, one of the analogies you put, the uh, financial crash of 2008, it's bigger than COVID. It's bigger than a large number of the wars that we've uh, seen since 1945. And the implications of it are, as uh, David was implying just now, absolutely massive. You, we, and, they, and they stretch all the way to Taiwan. So it is tremendously important that the, the West continues its support for Ukraine for reasons that actually go far beyond the borders of Ukraine. And if I could add even further historic context, just in terms of what we see on the battlefield, Ukraine is this very curious mix of World War I-like combat with massive trenches and minefields and concertina wire and obstacles and so forth. It has Cold War armored systems. These are the very same systems by and large, maybe in some cases a bit modernized, but not in all, um, that when I was a major in, an, in a mechanized infantry brigade in Germany on the inter-German border, this is what we expected to face on the side of the Warsaw Pact, T-72 tanks and the like. Uh, and we were employing the systems that you're seeing employed on the Ukrainian side increasingly as well, Leopards and now the M1 Abrams tanks. But then you've got unmanned air and maritime and to some degree ground systems that are becoming increasingly important. This is increasingly 
a war of drones, some of which are remotely piloted and others of which are actually algorithmically piloted, if you will. It's the, it's the program. Uh, so the human in the loop is the individual that designs the program that actually guides the actions of the particular unmanned system. And it's all carried out for the first time ever, really, in a context that is uniquely transparent because just about everybody on the battlefield has a smartphone, has access to the internet, uh, and can upload videos, photographs, uh, other data and so forth to websites and social media platforms, uh, which give this a degree of, of open source intelligence that is completely unprecedented. The challenge, of course, is that there is so much out there that one needs the data aggregators, if you will, or the uh, applications that enable you to fuse all of this intelligence. And then, of course, in the intelligence community, to take all that is available in open source uh, and then merge it as well with the intelligence that is gathered through classified sources and methods. So it's really quite a hybrid war in that regard as well. Um, one that has, again, elements of everything from all quiet on the Western Front to Blade Runner, to use the description that Max Boot has so aptly provided. Well, you mentioned drone attacks there, and, and you as a commander might find this rather un an uncomfortable question, because with the assassination of Hassem Soleimani, the leader of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, taken out by the US in 2020, do you think that's going to be a another form that we'll see more in the future? Commanders actually targeted personalities by such drones? Well, you um, see this on a near daily basis in Ukraine. Um, among the most important targets sought by either side are those that are the headquarters uh, of everything from battalions to brigades and the echelons uh, above that. Not to mention, um, in the case of Russia, going after the, you know, going downtown in Kiev and trying to strike various uh, leadership facilities there, although with much less success because of the very impressive development of the air and ballistic missile defenses uh, around Kiev. In fact, when Andrew and I were there about four months ago, when I was just there a few weeks ago, uh, the sirens go off now in Kiev and very few people actually go to the air raid shelters because of the confidence in these particular systems. But the, the effort is still ongoing and it's well known as well that there were also human operatives that were swarming throughout Kiev um, looking for President Zelensky and other uh, major Ukrainian leaders as well. I wanted to go back to the, the, the figure of Douglas MacArthur. He's a fascinating man, and I wondered if he is also a, a cautionary le a lesson for commanders, U.S. commanders. I can see, yes, uh, Lord Roberts is chomping at the bit. Yes, he very much is a cautionary lesson for commanders. The, uh, the civil-military connection is uh, and relationship is an absolutely central one in any democracy. And frankly, Douglas MacArthur overstepped it. He was keen to uh, extend the war. He was uh, he obviously got the big strategic idea incredibly wrong when he failed to recognize that the Chinese were crossing the Yellow River in vast numbers. And um, and then he also wanted to uh, push further up the uh, 38th parallel once he had landed at Injon and uh, and turned the uh, 
the war later on. So, and then he started talking about nuclear weapons as well, uh, just to uh, bring it back to your first question. And he didn't have the imprimatur of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and certainly not of the White House. So, it is a it is a pretty uh, classic um, case him of uh, of going too far. And again, it's, it wasn't just that he was seen as being insubordinate to the real commander in chief, the president of the United States. Uh, it was that, as Andrew said, he failed to get the big ideas right. He didn't recognize that marching north to the Yalu would actually bring the Chinese into the war, which totally changed the context of that war and the dynamics on the ground, bringing vast forces uh, of the Chinese into that to support their North Korean partners. And again, almost running the U.S.-led coalition forces uh, off the peninsula. And this brings us to the element of this book that really jumped out for Andrew and for me over the course of our writing of it that led us to go back and really rewrite the first chapter or so where we talk about the, the criticality of sound strategic leadership. Uh, and this is leadership at the very, very top. It's both the political leadership uh, and it is the military leadership in that particular theater of war. Uh, and that has to be proper. It, it has to perform four tasks, the first of which is to get the big ideas right, the overarching strategy. It has to communicate the big ideas through the breadth and depth of the organization and to all other stakeholders. Strategic leaders have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas, what we normally think of as leadership, example, energy, inspiration, getting great people, inspiring them, uh, incentivizing them, allowing those not measuring up to move on, how you spend your time, uh, the metrics that you use, et cetera. And then a fourth task, sometimes overlooked, which is formally to sit down and determine how you need to refine the big ideas so you can continue the process again and again and again. And in the book, we lay out a number of cases in which there is very impressive uh, strategic leadership, in some cases in, in the capitals of the, the countries leading an effort, let's say uh, George H.W. Bush, who at the very first meeting of the U.S. National Security Council states, this will not stand about the Saddam's army invasion of, of Kuwait. Well, the military now knows what the mission is. Uh, and then they exercise very impressive strategic leadership as well. General Powell in the Pentagon, General Schwarzkopf uh, in the theater of war. But we also see cases in which that was not uh, uh, what happened. And of course, the MacArthur miscalculation was one of those. Uh, both French and American leaders in and Indo Indochine, Indochina, and then uh, Vietnam for the Americans uh, didn't get the big ideas right. I mean, talk about a catastrophic big idea. Let's go out to Dien Bien Phu. We'll build a big base out there with French forces, and that will attract the North Vietnamese, and, and we'll slaughter them all as they try to take us on. And that obviously didn't work out quite the way it was intended. It led to a defeat and an ignominious departure from uh, Indochina by the French. And then the, the Americans, who really didn't get the big ideas right until as late as 1968 with General Abrams taking command uh, and and finally getting them right. But by then, domestic public opinion in the United States uh, almost preordained that we were going to have to draw down uh, and hand off to the South Vietnamese forces. Uh, so again, this element of war 
is absolutely crucial. Uh, and as we looked at each of these different cases, um, the Falklands, where you have a combination of Maggie Thatcher and her military leaders, uh, I mentioned the, the, the Gulf War, uh, even in a, a much overlooked campaign, which both of us really enjoyed, which is that of Oman putting down the Dofar Rebellion, where you have uh, a recent Sandhurst graduate who comes home and overthrows his father, the Sultan of Oman, uh, and then it is partnered with a superb British officer, uh, General Sir John uh, Akers, Brigadier at the time, I believe, uh, who later writes this delightful book, We Want a War, which recounts how the combination of a great civilian leader and a great military leader put together a classic civil military counterinsurgency campaign that successfully uh, dealt with that Dofar rebellion. Well, I was fascinated reading in the book that the the Marines commander, and I forget his name, I, I confess, who was reading counterinsurgency manual written in 1940, which was influential on, on the Marines in, in Vietnam. Well, yes. Um, again, the Marines did get it right. They had Essentially, they lived with the people to secure them, which is the biggest of the big ideas about a civil military counterinsurgency campaign instead of the army forces in Vietnam, which were pursuing the large war, the big unit war, uh, even though at least in the early years, you can certainly argue that at a certain point, North Vietnamese units required that kind of action as well but not at the outset. And it was ironic that the Vietnamese, after the departure of the French, when the US began to take over uh, leadership of the coalition security assistance, wanted to develop forces that could conduct counterinsurgency operations, which would have been very much small military units, police and, and civic uh, elements. Um, and instead the US with the lessons of Korea ringing in their ears said, no, what you need is X number of divisions that look largely like ours, because that's how we re-established the 38th parallel in Korea. Uh, and that, that's what indeed they, they developed, uh, even though uh, those were not the units that you really needed to contend with the guerrillas and the insurgents that were the plague of Vietnam for many, many years, uh, until indeed the North Vietnamese forces made more and more of an appearance. And Lord Roberts, Malaya and Borneo are two counterinsurgencies that are hugely successful and, and so close to Vietnam, similar conditions. It's extraordinary, really, reading of their success. Well, I mean, similar conditions in jungle, in that they're both, you know, um, fought in jungles, but um, but they're very different political um, uh, situations, of course. The very strange one about Borneo was that nobody knew it was going on. It was a secret war on both sides. The Indonesians didn't want the world to know because uh, essentially they were losing and they had started the uh, the cross-border attacks. And the um, Commonwealth forces didn't want anyone to know either because they were set they were um, essentially uh, attacking across the border into Indonesia, which uh, without having declared war against them. So it was, a, it was the kind of war that would be completely impossible in the era of iPhones and uh, and everything that we have, um, satellite technology and so on today. But in those days, it could be fought. And they very sensibly kept the uh, the press and the media away from what was going on in the front line. And the entire war was fought and won without anybody knowing. So that doesn't really tell us very much about the evolution of warfare from today, because it would be completely impossible to have happen. Malaya, on the other hand, is a is a different um, matter. 
when David was writing his famous counterinsurgency uh, manual, he uh, used Miller um, several times as examples of the way to do it. Um, of course, it's important to remember that we had already offered Malaysia its independence. And so there was this was not a war of um, like the French in Indochina hang on to a colony which wanted to secede. It was actually a, uh, it wasn't a post-imperial war in that sense. It was an anti-communist war, a straightforward uprising against communists and therefore should be seen much more as in the Dofar, Oman kind of uh, uh, scenario, I think. But a masterful campaign. And, you know, a commander who also, by the way, had enormous civil authority by and large. So you had a degree of unity of command in that particular effort that's somewhat unique uh, as well in these counterinsurgency campaigns. Uh, but a campaign in which the big ideas were just spot on. Um, and, and I know that Andrew, who led on that chapter, enjoyed that particular aspect of this very much, not the least of which it was a success for the Brits. <laughs> Well, a chapter that you not only led, I think wrote the chapter on Afghanistan, I was very interested in. And I wondered, because the Taliban and the Haqqani networks were able to find a safe haven in Pakistan, did that always make Afghanistan, you won't probably like me suggesting this, but make Afghanistan nigh on impossible to secure in a long term basis? Well, it made it exceedingly difficult, without question. Now, there were hopes at various times that our Pakistani partners, whom we were supporting in a variety of different ways, not the least of which is about 3 to $3.5 billion in combination of security and economic assistance, would do something about these safe havens uh, in Baluchistan, which is where the Afghan Taliban had their headquarters. We knew it well. We generally had quite good insights, if you will, into what it was they were doing and where they were doing it, witnessed that some years later, of course, there was one strike against the leader of the Taliban there. And then, of course, in North Waziristan, where you had the Haqqani Taliban or the Haqqani network closely allied that were largely operating in eastern Afghanistan. So again, that was a huge handicap. But I should note here that when I was completing my three-star tour in Iraq, keep in mind I was in Iraq for the two-star tour, the invasion, and then the first year in the war as the commander of the 101st Airborne Division went back to a established the Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, the train and equip mission, which grew so very substantially. And then, of course, as a four-star to command the surge uh, in Iraq, and then actually to be the U.S. Central Command commander over top of the U.S. commander there as well. Uh, but on the way home from the three-star tour, Secretary Rumsfeld asked me to come home through Afghanistan and to take a team over there and assess how their train and equip mission was going. But to do that, I felt that I needed to assess, I needed to describe the context up front. And so the very first slide in that particular briefing to him when I got back was titled Afghanistan does not equal Iraq. And it laid out all the ways in which Afghanistan was much tougher than Iraq, even though at that time, the level of violence in Iraq was many times that in Afghanistan, the Taliban then, this is September 2005, were still reorganizing and putting their foot back in the water in Afghanistan and then going back out to Pakistan. But you could see that this was going to be an extraordinarily problematic, uh, especially because Afghanistan had very, very little money compared to Iraq, which could generate $100 billion in oil revenues if the prices up and then you could get the pipelines patched up and the electricity flowing. Um, it, it had no history of strong central government, had no infrastructure, it had no literacy. I mean, all the 
elements of Iraq that actually made Iraq ultimately doable during the surge, in particular when we drove violence down by nearly 90% and kept it down for three and a half years, these were not present in Afghanistan. And, and I told Secretary Rumsfeld that even though the level of violence in Afghanistan at that time was much less than that in Iraq, that I feared that Afghanistan was going to be the longest of the long wars. Uh, and that did prove to be true. And that particular handicap, again, our inability, not allowed to go into Pakistan, except in very, very rare occasions, the raid that brought Osama bin Laden to justice, for example, that handicapped that campaign and meant that there was always a sanctuary uh, in which the Taliban could seek refuge if we were pressing them uh, particularly hard, as we did uh, in, say, 2000. 10, 2011, when I was privileged to command there. And for the one time, we finally got the inputs right. I should note here that we failed to get the inputs right in Afghanistan. By inputs, I mean the right big ideas, the military big ideas and civil military big ideas, the right level of resources, almost military, diplomatic, uh, spies, development workers, rule of law, personnel and so forth, the right organizational architecture, that something is not trivial when you have a coalition and a U.S. Uh, chain of command and various units of various authorities, um, the infrastructure, uh, the preparation of our forces, the right leaders, all the rest of this. So again, it took us nine years just to get the inputs right uh, in Afghanistan. And, and that meant that we failed to take advantage of a number of years of very, very low levels of violence in Afghanistan, during which we might have built up Afghan security forces and Afghan institutions much more effectively than ultimately we did. Just going back to the um, career, again, MacArthur, uh, I, I can't get away from him, but his uh, Operation Chromite, which was this stunning amphibious landing, is... Interesting to read as an important lesson, I suppose, for Taiwan. I know that's alluded to in the book, the fact that amphibious landings, which of course are surprise attacks often, and there's a great quote in the book from Paul Wolfowitz, who says that the surprise is that we're surprised by surprise attacks. So, you know, one can't help but think of Taiwan and China, amphibious landings and surprise attacks and, you know, in the post sort of Ukraine world. Is that something we shouldn't be surprised about? Well, um, you've just mentioned the Incheon attack and, um, of course, also D-Day are two examples of very successful amphibious attacks. But let's not forget Gallipoli, Anzio, Salerno, Dakar, you know, it's it's the most difficult um, kind of operation to, to carry out successfully. And so the Chinese have got, and of course, the, the straits are much longer. They're 90 miles rather than the channel, which is 22 miles wide. They've got a lot of things to contend with. And when they look, as they do look constantly at Ukraine, they're also seeing a um, anti-tank weaponry, which is pretty devastating. In, uh, in retrospect, it seems extraordinary that Taiwan hasn't got um, military conscription, full-scale military conscription. It, um, it's amazing that it doesn't. But nonetheless, it does have some pretty impressive kit. That, uh, and also, of course, it's got the support of the United States. It actually does have uh, mandatory service, but it's fairly short, although they are now extending that service. But, but you know, Incheon was incredibly 
risky and incredibly audacious, therefore, which is one reason why it did actually achieve the success it did. It was very, very unlikely, certainly in the eyes of the North Koreans, that something like this could could be achieved. Um, if you look at contemporary scenarios, I, it, I think it's very hard to imagine how there could be surprise achieved in a world in which you can see everything. Um, and that's one of the big advances, really. You know, we write about how back in the Cold War, there was this adage that we all repeated, what can be seen can be hit, what can be hit can be killed. But the truth was, we couldn't see all that much back in those days. Again, I was there. Um, we tried to extend the battlefield in depth per air land battle doctrine and so forth, but there were very limited capacities and capabilities to do that. And even if you could see something, if it was moving, our ability to hit, to do dynamic targeting was very, very limited. That is not the case now. Uh, now you can see everything, you can hit everything just about. Um, certainly you can defend, you can disperse, you can take a lot of actions to uh, mitigate the vulnerabilities. But at the end of the day, uh, if it's above the surface of the water, um, there's going to be a degree of vulnerability with that. And so this is where the elements of deterrence come into play. And that's what we really have to focus on. Um, we and all of our partners in the Indo-Pacific, look, you know, we want to see the most mutually beneficial relationship between the U.S., the West, and China. But we have to address the world the way it is, not the way we'd like it to be. And the reality is that there is severe competition, in the words of the U.S. National Security Advisor. And what we need to ensure is that that does not turn into co actual conflict. And the way you prevent that is through deterrence, which rests on a potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ those capabilities. Again, the perception of this. And we have to ensure we get a vote. We have agency here by ensuring that our forces can indeed present the capabilities that will deter a uh, would-be aggressor. Uh, and in this case, we, we note that we have to transform our forces very dramatically and, and more rapidly than we are at present from this very small number of very large, very capable systems, also incredibly expensive, highly manned, and to, to varying degrees, uh, degrees of vulnerability from that to a massive number of much smaller unmanned systems, some of which may still be remotely piloted, but many of which will be increasingly algorithmically piloted, where the human in the loop is the person who designs the program and the conditions that the machine must meet uh, with its own systems and other systems of systems that are supporting it before it can take a particular kinetic or non-kinetic action. And again, we have to carry out this transformation to ensure that deterrence is very, very solid. And then we have to be sure that there's no questions about the willingness to employ this, is, which is why I'm sure that President Biden not once or twice or thrice or four times has stated that we would take action uh, if Taiwan was threatened. But that means that there are implications of our support for Ukraine. It means that there were, when there was a red line that turned out not to be a red line, that it had reverberations and repercussions. You can argue, I think, that the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and the way the withdrawal was conducted might have convinced Putin that the U.S. would not respond as, as forcefully 
and as promptly and exercise the leadership that it has of NATO and the Western world in providing support to Ukraine. And again, we need to keep that in mind as individuals in Washington and other capitals are contemplating uh, whether to continue to support Ukraine, which in our view is certainly very clear that uh, it's an imperative. Again, not just because uh, Ukraine deserves and merits that support and because they've been brutally and without provocation invaded, but also because that has repercussions elsewhere in the world and can undermine deterrence uh, elsewhere in the world. I know we're running out of time, but I just had one final question, really, which is this time next year, we're going to be in the middle of a, a US election. And I wondered how key for both of you, you feel the, the conflict in Ukraine will, uh, how big a part it will play? Well, look, I usually leave domestic politics to others, but since there's only a UK political figure here in the House of Lords, I guess I should just observe the, the truism in American politics is that elections, presidential elections, are normally about domestic issues, particularly domestic economic issues. And, you know, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Those kinds of questions. It's about your own wallet or pocketbook. Um, and that those are the kinds of issues uh, that typically uh, are the determining factors. There will be undoubtedly discussion of America's role in the world. Some who believe that we should continue to keep all these plates spinning together with our uh, partners and allies from around the world. And I would count myself among those others who will perhaps say that we should have a less lesser role in the world or, or perhaps should focus on the Indo-Pacific from which this is a diversion, which I think is very, very arguable. I don't think that what we're providing uh, to Ukraine keeps us from providing what's needed elsewhere. Um, and that, again, the U.S. uniquely, together with its closest uh, allies and partners, the U.K. being at the top of that list, uh, has got to keep all these plates spinning around the world. In other words, keeping an eye not just on uh, what's going on uh, out in, in Europe, but also uh, North Korea, again, the Indo-Pacific, uh, various Islamist extremist groups that still exist around the world, uh, where we're still keeping an eye and pressure on them, Iran and its various threats and so forth, uh, cyber threats, all of these different issues that exist um, the U.S. and its Western allies and partners have to keep these plates spinning. And if they don't, uh, then there will be consequences and, and those will not be desirable. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, again, the key factors in the election will be those that revolve around, again, the economy. As President Clinton famously said, it's the economy, stupid. And there, that was a profoundly big idea. I think we're very fortunate, of course, as well as the American election next year, um, next uh, autumn, we're also going to be having a British election. Fortunately, the um, two contenders, Rishi Sunak and, and Keir Starmer, both see very much eye to eye on Ukraine, and there isn't a uh, ideological divide. We don't have an isolationist wing, of course, in our politics, uh, such as seems to be opening up in the Republican Party at the moment, tragically, as, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I should just note here that what Andrew has just said is hugely important because the UK has, in many respects, walked point for NATO in the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was the, the first to have 
anti-tank guided missiles on the ground. It was the first prime minister, major country prime minister to visit uh, Kiev. Uh, most recently, it's been storm shadow. It was the early earliest commitment uh, of tanks. You can work your way through the various systems that have been provided. And the UK typically has been a little in advance of the United States. US and others have watched to see what the reaction is. And then, you know, then the industrial strength American commitment uh, and contribution comes. So I think we should recognize the important role that the UK has played in responding to this invasion of a sovereign country. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you, General Petraeus, Lord Roberts. Thank you for your time. Thank Good you very much, you. Uh, Oliver. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that. You've had two generals in two successive episodes. Please do rate, review and subscribe if you can. Coming up, the Film Club continues with The Bounty, starring Anthony Hopkins and Mel Gibson. And as I mentioned at the start, I'm doing a bonus on the 20th century history of Israel and Palestine. So I hope you can join me. Until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>